Right, welcome everyone to Fazlift's podcast, episode 53. Today I've got with me Joe Webb. Uh, Joe, thanks for joining us today. How are you doing? Not so bad, thanks. See you? Yeah, pretty good. So I'll do a quick introduction for Joe. And then, Joe, um, you are from my hometown. Um, we've never actually met in person, but I've been following you on Instagram for a while. You're a big boy. <laughs> You've competed before. You're a physio. Uh, and you do some work at my local gym, but also across the Midlands. Um, would you be able to give the viewers just a bit more of a in-depth about who you are and your competitive background, your work history as well? We'll go from there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So uh, I actually do deep tissue massage, um, not physio, but I mean, I guess it's all kind of similar, but it is, it is a second job. I do have a, a normal job, <laughs> but I come from about, I've done both bodybuilding and powerlifting. Um, I started training pretty young. I, I actually started training when I was 13, but I started training, I guess, properly when I was 14. Um, competed in powerlifting when I was 15, 17, and 19. Um, and back then, there weren't many teenagers competing at all. Um, so you'd go to a competition, might be three or four teenagers in the whole competition. Um, lifting uh, wasn't really as fashionable as it is now. <laughs> so I did fairly well as a teenager then, although, I mean, in, in today's standards, probably wouldn't do anywhere near as good. Um, but I kind of fell into powerlifting almost accidentally. Um, I had trained probably more for a, a goal, goals of muscle, muscle growth and, and trying to look a certain way. Um, but then we just noticed that as I was pushing my weight up and I got stronger, for my age at least, I was getting fairly strong and could do well. So I ended up competing in powerlifting more just because I thought, well, I can do quite well at this and it kind of gave me some goals and stuff like that. Um, I went before lifting, I was, wasn't very lean, so I kind of came from a, a, a fatter starting point. <laughs> so after the bits of powerlifting and stuff, as I started dieting, I got more and more into bodybuilding rather than just trying to get bigger. Um, I competed in bodybuilding when I was 23. Um, basically kind of a similar thought process to the, to the powerlifting. 23 is the cutoff for juniors. Um, by that point, you know, I'd been training, uh, nearly 10 years um so i had a fairly decent i thought physique for at least for for a junior um and a lot of people were saying i could do well if i competed in the juniors so i got on and did two shows as a junior and since then just uh, still been training um had a few different changes of uh, what i'm doing with my life um looking to buy a house things like that so haven't actually competed since but looking at maybe next year to do that yeah, that, that sounds good. Thank you for that. So just a couple of questions off the back of that. Um, firstly, what were your best lifts in powerlifting? As a teenager. Um, <laughs> um, actually, yeah, well, let's go for as a teenager and then maybe all time so far. So when I was when I was 19, I did a uh, 150 bench. Nice. Um, and I actually, when I'd gone to compete, um, must have probably been about six weeks before. This was when I was, when I was younger. Um, I did 110 when I was 15, which at the time was fairly good. I mean, I see people that age lifting way more nowadays, but uh, I'd, I'd hurt my lower back and uh, I decided to just do bench only when I was, when I was younger, um, mainly because I didn't want to try and push, push through it anyway and end up hurting my back to the point where I couldn't bench. But I also didn't want to do a full meet knowing that uh, two, two out of the three lifts had been compromised. So I did right. bench only early on. Um, and then when I was 19 and I did the, the 150 bench, um, I didn't push the squat or the deadlift too hard in the meet anyway. So I took like a, a 195 squat, I think it was, and a two, 230 deadlift. Uh, and I more just uh, did them to, 
put them on the board. I think the 230 deadlift was a PB. Um, the squat wasn't, but I wanted to just kind of get that out of the way. I was more, I struggled a lot at that age with nerves and with the anxiety. Oh, yeah, I, remember. I, remember I wanted that, yeah. to just get that out of the way and get onto the bench because that was the one that I was uh, yeah. look, looking to do a lot better in. Um, and then since then, uh, I, the problem is that I never really do one rep maxes. Um, I don't really think they have much place in bodybuilding. Um, people always ask me, why don't you, why don't you max out? And I, I don't really, have, I don't really have a need. Like, I, yeah. of course, there is the whole ego of being stronger and stuff. But I can prove how strong I am with a five rep set rather than a one rep set. And a one rep set leaves uh, a one rep max leaves you drained for the rest of the workout because you've got so amped up. I just don't like doing it. So, and if you're if you're decently half strong, which you are, the potential for injury is right up there. You know, it's, yeah, all, so, it's all well and good maxing out if you've got a hundred kilo bench, but it's a little bit different if you're stronger than that. So, and the other question was, um, I know that you do some of your deep tissue work in Derby. Um, yes. But where are you based? Uh, I actually live in Leeds, but I grew up in Derby. So right. as I got qualified doing that, yeah. I had more and more people asking like, oh, when you're next in Derby, can you treat me? Gotcha. So I was doing a lot of home visits, um, which I do in Leeds as well. But to drive down to Derby and then spend all afternoon driving around to different houses, it's not very time effective. I might get four people in across a whole afternoon. So when uh, the gym that we go to opened up, I managed to get a room there and I just get everybody to come to me. Typically, maybe one day a week in Derby or one weekend, uh, two weekends a month or something like that, and just fill the day and get it all done in one. Because I, I, when I saw your profile and I saw that you work in Derby, I didn't realize, I kind of assumed maybe you, you lived in Derby. I just, but now you've grown, you said you've grown up in Derby. I was like, where's this guy come from? I've never seen him before. He's powerlifted, <laughs> he's, he's bodybuilded, and I'm, I don't know who he is. So, where do they, where'd you come from? So, how old are you now, Joe? I'm 25 at the moment. Right, okay. Okay, maybe that's just me being out of touch then. That's, uh... Well, I moved out of Derby when I was uh, when I was eighteen. I moved to Australia for six months, and then right. when I got back, within a few weeks, I moved off for uni in Leeds. Okay. So I've been out of Derby for quite a long time now. Fair enough. Yeah. Okay. Cool. Um, so yeah, awesome. And just one quick follow up as well. When you hit that one fifty bench, what weight category was that in? Uh, under one hundred. I was. Uh, cool. Nice. I've never had a great strength to weight ratio. <laughs> Yeah, but you look jacked, so fuck it. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, it's not great in competition, but the rest yeah. of the time, I think, why would you not rather be big as well as strong? So, <laughs> yeah, and yeah, and uh, what uh, what sort of height are you, Joe? Uh, just five ten. Yes, yeah, but yeah, same height as me. Okay, cool, awesome. All right, nice one. So, I want to get Joe on today to talk about uh, nutrition, and um, we've been talking off air. And we've got a few sort of things to talk about. Um, including nutrient timing, macro composition, and sort of performance health trade-offs. But um, Joe made the point that what we really want to kind of kick off the discussion with is managing hunger. Because if we can't do that right, then we really can't do a great deal of anything. Um, so let's kick off with managing hunger. And I want to get your thoughts, Joe, on how you approach this personally and sort of what you would recommend for other people. Um, yeah, I think, and this is probably the difference between I guess gym park or people people that are just going to the gym to get in shape or to get a little bit bigger or, or leaner or whatever versus bodybuilding or competitive powerlifting or anything like that. Those things are so long term that really most people at some point they're, they're either going to need a lot of food anyway because they'd be quote unquote hard gainers, so appetite is going to be a battle for them. Or if they're not, like I wasn't really to begin with, as your body weight starts getting higher and higher, you end up needing a lot of food anyway. So 
the biggest limiting factor that I have found and the people that I know have found is maintain an appetite long term. So it's easy to be hungry a month after you finish a cutting diet, but it's harder when you get six months, 12 months into pushing your weight up. So an appetite and injury really are the two things probably that will grind most people's progress to a halt. Because it's all well and good saying, we, you know, you've got to force feed or you just got to get the meals in. But if you do that for long enough, the battle gets harder and harder and harder. And we've probably all done it to the point where you put food in your mouth and you gag and your digestion suffers and the meal just sits inside you for hours and hours and hours. And there's only so long that I think you can battle that for. Most people have tried it. And when you start bringing your food back up, so then you have to eat another meal again, like summit is off there. And eventually that'll, that'll bring everything to a halt. Yeah, I completely agree. I think in those times, that's usually when my body is telling me, look, things aren't really feeling very healthy. And that normally mm-hmm. coincides with my blood work being a little bit off as well for me personally. So I can pack away a hell of a lot of food. Maybe for other people, it's quite not quite that dramatic, but maybe me being a bit older, it's different. But it's definitely usually a bad sign when I can't get food down. It usually means something's off and I need to really back off. So letting you carry on then, what, what kind of things are you doing to manage that? Well, I think the thing with keeping your appetite going, or at least being able to get your meals down, I think it's, I've tried so many things over the years because it has, for the last few years, probably as I've started to get up above maybe 110 kilos, maybe even over 100, fairly lean, that kind of size, for me, it requires a lot of a lot of calories. So you're talking yeah. five and a half thousand to 6,000, which day in and day out, you know, after six, eight, 12 weeks, gets difficult for me anyway and it's more the culmination of a lot of different little things to keep your appetite going i've never really found one tip that's made a massive difference it's more been you know you pick up different things or that makes it a bit easier this makes it a bit easier when you're doing all of them together you at least you make it a bit easier for yourself it's never actually easy but you got it's got to be easy enough to get through right so and i think of course there's loads of things that people already know you know and when my appetite is if i wake up one day and i don't have appetite i end up doing more shakes maybe for one day i might do four meals and three shakes instead of six or seven meals so a liquid meal is easy to get down yeah um but i think we could probably go into so many different things i think food choices are big i think we're, i think we're helpful too yeah i mean a lot of my audience are fairly hardcore bodybuilders. I don't know how much of the podcast you've seen before, but I've had quite a lot of guys from America on who are just knocking on the door being pro. And yeah. they're in the region of that 6,000 to 7,000 calories per day. Some of the guys are really, really big. Um, and I think they'd like to hear kind of what people are doing in the field. Uh, and let's talk through some specifics um, just for getting, for managing appetite and getting, getting food down you. I think a big one that a lot of people don't think of is food choices as far as texture. Um, and if you, if you think about it, most uh, fast food places, the, the food that they produce, you don't even really need to chew. Right? So actually a McDonald's cheeseburger, you can push that against the roof of your mouth and it will just break apart. You can get that down without chewing. And that's probably not done by accident. That makes, it makes the food very easy to get down, very satisfying and tasty. Now, if I compare, if I'm not very hungry and I've got a a plate of pieces of meat and rice, that takes a lot more effort, a lot more scoops, a lot more chopping up to get down than if you make a meal that is more consistent like baby food. So mashed potato, minced beef, those kind of things. So So one big thing for me has been 
looking at the food texture and how can I make this meal easier to just chew and swallow and get down. Because if you don't really feel like eating, it's a lot more of a battle to chop up steak. So I rarely ever eat steak. If I ever eat chicken breast, I always put it through the slow cooker and then shred it. So food texture has been quite big for me. And then, yeah, I think that's an interesting one just to expand on that a little bit. I think, so there's also uh, jaw fatigue as well, right? So that's the thing. So, you know, exactly. when you're in a meal and kind of like what you're saying there, you have a lot of meat to get through. There's jaw fatigue that happens as well. Um, and if you're taking that long to chew it, there's, I think there's probably a taste fatigue involved as well. So it's like, you're just having that same flavor over and over and over again. Whereas to get more, you might want to have a, more, a wider variety. I, I've done quite a lot of research into food palatability hypothesis. And that's the idea that more ingredients, more flavors, more textures per meal tend to make for make you want more. So if we're looking on the other end of it, almost what you're saying for people who are listening, thinking, oh, well, you know what, Joe, I'm actually trying to lose weight. It's actually quite useful for them as well because do the fucking opposite, you know? Like make sure you have those meals which are heavily protein-based or do force you to chew, do force you to take time in eating the meal. Um, yeah, and crunchy yeah. vegetables. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, yeah. I like that point on food texture. I think that's a good way to, good way to put it. So, yeah, really good. Um, and then actually, if, in kind of a scientific manner, of course, uh, a food that is still going into your, uh, I guess, GI as actual, albeit chewed, but pieces of meat is going to take longer for your body to break down than when it's gone through essentially like slop. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. I think they refer to it as gastric emptying in, um, in the literature. So the two of the sort of large factors are protein and then fiber seem to be the, the big ones there for, for gastric emptying. So the, the whole idea, I, I do a fair bit with um, binge eating um, disorders as well. Yeah. And some of the things that we look at there is trying to slow gastric emptying. So you don't get these massive sort of crashes in insulin and which can spike hunger. It's one factor which can spice, spike hunger. And part of the attenuation of that is lots of protein, lots of fiber seems to help. Yeah. Um, and actually, interesting you said about the different tastes. I've always found, now, although it's not consistent with everybody that I've kind of suggested this to or spoke to, but using multiple different carb um, sources per meal helps. So, for example, if I have a giant bowl of, let's say it was a minced, potato, uh, minced beef um, and rice, versus if I cut that rice portion in half, but I put it in a uh, a burrito or i have a piece of fruit yeah somehow i can get through that easier it feels totally. like i'm getting through less i'm not totally having spoonful rude. after spoonful or thoughtful after thoughtful of the same meal so i will have two or three different carb sources within one meal and that actually helps me get through it a little bit better it doesn't feel like i'm eating as much and it doesn't feel like as much of a task <laughs> when i look at that big bowl or big tupperware of the same meal where i feel like i've been eating forever and i look at it and there's still half left I went through a period of time where I was really obsessed with uh, Stan Effeding's uh, Monster Mash and I made a ton yeah. of it. And I, at one point I had a um, hundred meals that I prepared in my, in my freezer, in my chest freezer, <laughs> literally a hundred. Uh, I counted them up. Uh, but the thing is, the problem is I got sick of them. So what I did was to put them in a burrito. So I'd warm them up yeah. and then stick the whole Monster Mash in a burrito and, like, and add a bit of cheese on top. Great way to get the calories in. Like, yeah. And actually, interestingly, another one like, the, the selling point or one of them of the monster mash is with the inclusion of the chicken stock, it's moist. So it's easy to get down. So it's easier to swallow. And without knowing it, one of the things I'd always, I'd done for a long time as a teenager and as a, um, 
uh, a university student was a kind of staple meal for me was very similar to the monster mash and that it was minced beef peppers and rice and then i didn't know about chicken stock i used to add on top canned tomato which kept it moist and made it easy to get down and i think that's kind of a blend of what we said the texture and the, the different tastes it's certainly more easy to get down a meal that is moist like that than something that is dry which kind of leads on to the next point. I think it's um, cooking styles and how you cook things. And you want to take that into account and almost prepare for the fact that you might not feel like eating that meal. So I don't really grill any meat because it often ends up dry. I, very don't, I don't really often cook it in a pan um, if, it's a, if it's chicken breasts or something like that and fry it because the edges can go crispy very easily and it can go dry. And I know it's a lot easier to get to if I shred it up or if I mash it up. So I think the way you cook things you need to take into account as well. And a lot of these things will seem, might seem kind of silly to someone to go to that length. But when you're doing all these little things at once, your meals are far easier to get through. Um, I mean, you're a, lot more, you're a lot more miserable if you spend a whole day trying to get through meals that you don't like. Yeah, I mean, just on that note, I work with a lot of fat loss clients and a lot of it is making sure all these small factors are in check. There's no one big secret. It's just getting all the little things in check. And it's safe for any endeavor, really. Building muscle too. I mean, we'll, you know, uh, we might not talk about training today, but just in terms of training, getting all the right variables down pat is, is helpful. So there's no one big swing. There's no one magic pill. I know that's really a bit of a cliche, but it's, it's 100% true. So yeah, love it. Love it. Yeah, cooking style, moisture, fantastic. It all makes a difference. Um, I think you, you could never say enough for being prepared ahead of time as well. If I start getting hungry and I've got no meals made, I'm already sick of food and I have to think about oh, what, what meal do I want next? The answer is none. I spend half an hour debating it with myself and what to make. And by the time it's cooked, I'm all, I can always be an hour late for that meal. Whereas if I have three different meals that I'm making, maybe a chicken, a beef and a turkey meal, and I've got several of them refrigerated in Tupperwares in the fridge, then it's not a case of what I feel like eating. It's a case of which one of these three can I get down? Well, I guess I'll, I'll manage that one, warm it up, and it's done. And equally, whenever you go out, you never really want to get stuck without food. So you can walk. even if I only plan to be out for an hour and a half, I'll usually take a meal with me just in case. I had this discussion with uh, Cam from the gym, um, and uh, he was asking about meal timing and how important meal timing is. And I said to him that there is some evidence for meal timing. There's not massively robust evidence, particularly if you're eating a lot during the course of the day. But I said to him, the practical difference is if you're able to space out your meals, you're just going to have an easier time eating them. You know, so if you have a consistent amount of time between each meal, whether that's two and a half hours, whether it's four hours or anything in between, you're just going to have a better chance of eating them. So if you get lazy, you have a bad start to the day, then you can't decide what to eat. You have to cook everything and you're five hours delayed for the start of the meal trying to do your you know, fasting thing, whatever, while you're gaining weight, then all of a sudden you've got five or six meals in the space of a lot less time. That's just going to make life very, very difficult for yourself. So meal timing is, is a big, big factor, I think, with uh, when it comes to that. Yeah. Well, yeah, and if you're half an hour late to eat every meal, before you know it, it's ready for bed and you're one less meal down. So you've got a choice. Do I miss sleep or do I uh, stay up and, and get an extra meal in? But going on to meal time, and I think that's another one that actually a lot of people don't think about. And, uh, I, I mean, I don't help a lot of people with diet because I don't really push it as something I do because at the end of the day, I'm not a dietitian. But I've had met, people come to me and ask, like, like they probably do with you, what do you think of this? What do you think of that? And one of the things that I often tell people is you can probably find during the day periods where you can get down more food than others. But the key is 
without it affecting your next meal. So it's no use having a massive breakfast if then you're going to be full for five hours and you can't eat when ideally you, you plan to be hungry three hours later. But you will probably find times in the day where you can get more food in, whether that's an extra 200 calories or an extra 500 calories or more, without it affecting the next meal too much. So you've got to pick those times and capitalize on them. So for me, I can pretty easily get a big breakfast down and it not affect me too much. Post-workout, I can also uh, um, get in almost like an extra meal because I can have a, a shake when I finish my training session. Excuse me. By the time I'm kind of showered and cleaned up and got everything sorted, I'm ready for another meal. It might only be an hour and a half later. So if you can find those times and identify when and where they are, and beef up those meals a little bit, make them a bit bigger for no other purpose than it means by the end of the day, it's easier to get more, more, more food in. So it doesn't really matter to me if somebody says there's no value in eating extra carbs post-workout or there's no value in meal time, or it doesn't have an effect on muscle gain because what does have an effect on muscle gain is constantly maintaining uh, uh, an energy surplus. So how am I going to be able to make somebody do that? How am I going to be able to make it easier for them whereby they can stick to it and do it every day for 12, 12 weeks, 16 weeks a year? You've got to try to reduce how much of a challenge it is. So if I can find two meals in the day where they can add in an extra 500 calories each, that's an extra 1,000 calories a day. Now you can either say they can go 1,000 calories higher or easier, or conversely, you can knock off 1,000 calories from all the other meals where they're less hungry and manage their appetite better. So post-workout, I find, is a big one. A lot of people can eat a lot before bed and still be hungry by the morning. You know, there are some arguments to say a massive meal before bed can uh, have some negative health effects, but for the, for, the, for the sake of this argument, that can be another one. Um, and just depending on what people's work day is like, oftentimes there are meals where they can fit more food in than others. So I'd always try to figure that out. And some of it's going to be trial and error. And you'll probably go too high at some point and realize I'm, I'm not hungry for my next meal. But you'll find a balance where you can get a little bit more in. So one thing I've always suggested to people is, let's say they typically finish training, uh, they go and eat a, a, a normal meal. Well, I'll say make almost like half a meal's worth, just protein and carbs. And the main reason for that is it speeds up digestion. Uh, we don't want any fats there because the goal of this is to get through that meal and still be hungry again for your next meal. So make like half a meal in liquid form, basically a shake. Have that as soon as you finish your workout. And again, not this isn't really done for the kind of post-workout window. It's more done for the fact, where can I fit this half a meal in and still be hungry? So I have it straight at the gym. And by the, like I said, by the time I've driven home, showered, and, re and ready to have that next meal as I would anyway, I'm hungry again. So now I've got an extra half a meal's worth of calories in. I can do that for a week and then I can bump it up a little bit. I might add an extra 25 grams of carbs and see if I'm still hungry. And you will find where the tipping point is and you'll find actually how much you can, you can kind of sneak into that window without it impacting the rest of the day. So that's a pretty good strategy that I've suggested to people. That's fantastic. I, one of the things that I tend to do with the new clients is I get them to keep a food diary. Now, when I first started, it would just be a food diary for me to have a look at the calories they're eating. But now... I've kind of expanded it out into getting them to have uh, ratings of perceived hunger as well. And that gives yeah. me a rough idea. It's kind of what you're saying. It helps identify the gaps in the day where they're either getting hungry, where they're not so hungry. And you can use that for either. You can use that for trying to push fat loss or trying to push weight gain, whatever you want to do. And so that, it tends to be good. And it's all about tracking the data. Like that famous um, quote by that uh, business uh, consultant, uh, Peter Drucker. He said, uh, what gets 
tracked gets improved. Um, so yeah. if you're tracking the variables, you kind of know what you're working with. And um, yeah, so yeah, I love it. Food data. Very, and very equally, helpful. I've had people before that um, are trying to gain size, and I keep their breakfast pretty small because if they have a big breakfast, they can't eat for the rest of the morning. Well, I can keep their breakfast a bit smaller, they get hungrier quicker, and just make up the calories later in the day when they already have a better appetite. But equally for fat loss, if, you, if you've got a client and you're worried about them, or, or you need them, well, of course you need them to stick, to stick to the diet, but you know that's a challenge for them. Where are you going to pull the calories from? You're going to probably pull them from the times when they're least hungry, or they're occupied, or they're busy, for no other reason other than it makes it easier to follow. Exactly. And it, Rather it's, than it being that at lunchtime we want less calories because they're doing this, that, and the other. More importantly, we want them to stick to the diet. Yeah, 100%. It's always going to be practicality of optimality. And that's, that's some of the things that I've... It still frustrates me when I look at Instagram because there's a lot... There's sort of like a two components of Instagram. It's the evidence-based guys, and a lot of them seem to be a little bit too on the science side because they don't actually have a great deal of, of real-life experience. And it's like study, study, study. It's like studies are fine, but you know if you can't actually do what's on the study, um, assuming it's a decent, half-decent study in the first place, it's really not going to be of any use. So, yeah, I, I, I struggle with that a lot. It's got to be something that fits your schedule within the confines of your overall plan sticking to it is far more important than getting than crossing off all the uh, all the t's yeah love it awesome um i think cardio can be valuable um but equally it doesn't fit some people's schedule and some people it doesn't make much difference to their appetite but i have found before if i've done what we've said and i'm running late by the end of the day to get all my meals in if i go and do 20 or 30 minutes of actual cardio not just walking i could go on the, the stair stepper or something work up a bit of a sweat i definitely get hungrier quicker than if i didn't now if you look at how many calories that burn how many calories do you burn in 20 minutes on a stepper probably not really that much yet if you're hungry you get an extra meal in so it's still an overall net benefit but that can be hard to get people to stick to a lot of bodybuilders don't want to be doing cardio in the off season so um, I'm just going to pull you back a little bit on, on this conversation about diet uh, and managing hunger. Um, I want to just delve into a little bit about macro optimization and kind of look at what you do and what you prefer. Because there's, pro, well, actually, you know, every macro. If we start with, I guess, in regards to hunger, it's all important, but let's, let's cover them all because there seems to be two major arguments here. One is protein intake, and the other one is carbs versus fats. Where do we stand on that? And I've had some. I've seen some interesting stuff with Patrick Tor recently, who's pushing that higher fat intake, a higher carb intake, lower protein intake, and there's a high degree of variance. In terms of bodybuilding law and history, it's always been push to protein as high as fucking possible, um, which I'm not really on the side of. Um, I want to kind of know what your thoughts are. on. Let's start with protein. Well, I guess we could go through how I've done it as I've, as I've trained longer and, and learned more and tried more. Well, I came from the background of, like you said, push, push protein high. So yeah. two to three grams per actual pound of body weight. Yeah. So there were times when I was eating 500 grams of protein a day. And that just became normal for me. Uh, and I would be, uh, I can't really argue that it didn't work because I did that for so long. And I ate kind of like a moderate amount of fats um, and then probably a moderate to high carbs. But I was having a, a fairly decent amount of fats. And back then, I remember I used to find that if I kept my fats low, I was hungry all the time, and I'd eat and eat and eat, and I'd gain no weight, or very little. Yep. So my thinking at the time was, this was probably late teens, maybe early 20s, was without the fats to slow the digestion down, I was getting big spikes and drops, which would lead to the hunger. 
and there's only so much you can utilize in one go and probably worth pointing out that i was natural at this time so i'm thinking well there's only so much you can make use of in one go there's only so fast you can build muscle i'm getting through this food almost too quick and that's why i'm eating and eating and eating. it's not really leading to anything um and every time i up my fats a little bit i made better progress so i was kind of always of the mind that that seemed to work best for me but what started to happen is as my calorie requirements got higher and higher it was harder and harder to maintain my appetite i'd always start out get down on my food enjoy my meals but after and the amount of time it took got shorter and shorter after a certain amount of time i just couldn't eat anymore i wasn't hungry i dreaded my meals like we said and i kind of battled that back and forth for quite a while um making not a slow progress basically um i'd get up to a similar weight as i did the last push same would happen i'd have to back off the calories back off the training my weight would drop a little bit after i come back i'd make the same push and i each time i was i was going over that past weight yeah. by a very small amount um, and i quickly realized that the biggest limiter of my progress was how long i could keep it going i how long i could keep the food going in so eventually, one thing I'd never, almost, I'd almost never dared try was dropping my protein. I had tried dropping my uh, carbs a bit and adding more fats. Um, found I gained weight quicker, but probably didn't look better. Felt stronger as a result, but overall I wasn't sure that it was really doing that much. And I'd also tried very low carbs and high fats. Um, also, as a, as a bit of an experiment, I did. Um, people always say that, fruits and um, fruit uh, fruits are bad or fructose will not uh, glycogenate a muscle and i was kind of reading back and forth on the idea some people against it some people for it so i decided to this is when i was about 18 probably i decided to try to get an answer once and for all try a diet where all my carbs came from fruits so okay. i ate quite a decent amount of fats and carbs probably on the low end. I was eating probably around 200 grams a day, 250, but it was all from fruits. Uh, and I found on that kind of diet, I almost, I almost felt like I was on low carbs. I stayed quite lean easily. I stayed quite dry, so I looked pretty good. But I constantly felt like I didn't have, something was missing when I was training. And when I kind of swapped over to other starches and upped them a little bit, I only had to up them by about 50 grams per day. I felt completely different. I recovered faster between sets. I got better pumps, had better energy, and made bigger jumps in strength week to week. So it seemed like the lower carb thing, uh, if they were too low, it became a limiter. But if the fats were too high, uh, I think probably in hindsight, it made it more difficult to judge if I was overeating because the meals were so dense in calories. I would eat until to a point where I was full or I would be eating a good amount where I think oh, I'm hungry for my meals, but I'm getting them in and the calories would have been way higher. So I tried all that. And like I said, eventually it got to the point where I, I, it became obvious that I needed to find a way to keep my appetite up better. And I finally kind of dared to drop my protein a little bit. Um, I dropped it to about uh, three grams per kilogram. So I dropped it from like the high 400s to about 300. Um, and I dropped my fats quite a lot as well. I dropped them to somewhere around uh, 0.7 to 0.8 grams per kilo, which was pretty low for me. And I put my carbs as high as it needed to be to get the calories high. And I actually managed to hold my appetite a lot better. I made much better progress than I had before because I kept up a, a run for a lot longer. Um, and you know what? The meals are more enjoyable. Um, 
and and if I was if I needed and I've done this before this is another kind of tip for the appetite if I was getting if it was getting difficult to make my meals so big to get them down I would add small snacks in between meals of things that are reasonably tasty cereal bars that kind of thing where I can keep them on me or in my desk at work and I can have one between meals and by the end of the day that might be an extra 400 calories but if you're eating low fat you can kind of do what you want with that because there are a lot of sugary foods that are pretty nice i wouldn't i wouldn't eat shit all day but i could eat banana cereal bar and get a, get quite a good variety and not have to worry about it being too high in protein or or anything like that so i found actually it fitted kind of maybe my taste or my preference really well and i did that for quite a while and it's only really recently that it's now becoming a bit of a challenge again to get through enough volume of food you know 800 grams of carbs a day for months and months on end gets difficult now when i've earlier in this kind of push-up in weight that i've been doing for a while now my carbs were actually higher i'd go 900 ish and i was getting through them fairly easily and now it's becoming harder and harder just because of the, the volume of food that you have to get through on a low-fat diet um so there are some other things that i've started switching to and we can kind of go through that later i've been using more mcts um, and things like that but i think probably like we've said before what trumps all of this as far as what the research says is best high carb or, or high fat or, or anything is what that person can can get through and enjoy the most so i know people that the foods that they enjoy tend to be higher fat foods fattier meats eggs cheese that kind of thing and they're not too bothered about bread and potatoes but i enjoy that kind of food and many other people do and if a jam bagel is the best thing in the world to you well you put them on a high carb diet and a low fat diet and people aren't missing out too much on the foods that they like and they're eating the foods that they do enjoy uh, and, and, and it makes it easier for them so i think what trumps it all is what you find can keep your appetite up like we've said uh, a more a more dense smaller meal with more fats but that might keep you fuller for longer or a larger volume of food but that probably allows you to get hungrier quicker so yeah. what would you rather do you feel really full when you've eaten that one meal but get through it quicker or have a nice small meal that you can get down quick but many people find that they're not hungry after a high fat meal uh, yeah i that's a great summary and uh yeah thank you for that that's a really good walkthrough of a lot of different options and i think as as you're saying that i was certainly thinking back to times when i've tried high fat approaches lower protein approaches uh varied my carbohydrate intake all that kind of stuff and i'd say as you say it, it's very individual i don't think there was anything there where i concretely thought you know what that's exactly the same as me um i certainly me personally um i quite like my fats a little bit higher if i'm gaining weight just because i find the meal tends to move through me a lot quicker which is quite nice okay higher carbs for me don't actually work i don't have a i don't have any problem whatsoever with staying full even on a diet so it's really hard to deplete me <laughs> um like i was on hardly any calories leading up to my to my last comp and um i mean you just couldn't flatten me out uh so carbs for me i can keep them a little bit on the lower side compensate with higher fats the meal kind of digests better and then I get through it better, ready for my next meal, a little bit easier, a little bit quicker, as long as the, as long as they're quality fats and it's not shit. Um, so that seems to be sort of, but as you say, it's all very individual, and it's it's interesting to talk about this stuff because there'll be people out there who who do listen to what you say and they say, you know what, that's actually that rings a bell on all the different options. 
just making them aware that there are different options is quite good. Not just like there's one way of doing things. So yeah, very interesting. Definitely. And you can read about, or you can learn about, you know, a high carb diet being better for this, that, and the other, and vice versa, the high fat diet. But it means nothing if you find it extremely difficult to follow yeah. uh, to the point where you can't follow it. And nobody wants to be miserable all day to get that extra 2% benefit versus do something that you can stick to that doesn't, doesn't um, negatively affect your life. Because the benefit between both, it has to be very small, otherwise we would know for sure. Yeah, 100%. I think, you know, the, the old saying is like success leaves clues. And if you look at pro bodybuilders and what they're doing, some of the best of all time, they tend to do a lot of the similar stuff. So very, very high carbs and sort of moderate fats. But then again, you've got to look at causation and correlation there, as in why is it working for them? Potentially, I don't know. Who knows? Is it I, I would imagine as well something that plays a role is how lean that person stays throughout their, like what their bracket is from starting to push away and ending. Some people they never really get that fat, and some people they do get quite soft when they're pushing up. And we know body fat does affect carb metabolism. Yeah, and I, I tend to get fatter, so that's probably one of the reasons why I keep my carbs a bit lower and fats a bit higher. So maybe that would be it. Uh, yeah. All very interesting, and I, I imagine there's probably not something I've massively looked into, but I think some research, at least in fat loss is, and health, is starting to look at racial differences as well. There's certainly a lot of research looking at um, health in regards to racial differences, which I find fascinating. And I can't help but think at some point that will sort of dip over onto the bodybuilding into the bodybuilding world, just because we are starting to see a lot of really good bodybuilders and a large bodybuilding communities come out of sort of Asian countries, um, whether that's Korea uh, or whether that's like India um, and, and certainly Saudi Arabia, obviously, Kuwait, you know, yeah. Kuwait huge one there. The, it'd be really interesting to see like in five or 10 years time, if we started to see different trends coming out um, from, from those countries. I mean, it would almost be, it would almost be short-sighted to assume that it didn't have an effect when we yeah. know that there are racial differences in far as what, um, what drugs work best on certain people yeah. um, and what kind of uh, style of sport people tend towards. Yeah. And at the end of the day, the, the origin of a, of a race affects what type of food that, I guess, race of people have, have uh, developed around. Yeah, and I, yeah, I just like to point out at this stage, neither of what me and Joe are saying is particularly controversial. Um, this is all very well backed up in the research. So if you're sat home thinking, "Holy shit, guys," then you know this is this is all very research based. This is not we're not just pulling out of our ass. Um, so it, there's there's there are you know definite differences. My interest is just when will we see this dip over and spill over onto the bodybuilding world i would love to see how we can take health research and turn it into performance research that's always been interest of mine yeah and anecdotally more a little bit more lately i've heard people talk about certain compounds working better for certain uh, i guess ethnic origins would be the, okay. be the right term um, which I've never heard before. But if people are starting to talk about it, maybe it's trending in that direction. I've not heard anything about that. And, um, but let's, if, if you're comfortable with doing so, let's have a bit of a chat about that. Um, I, uh, well, it was, it was only actually, I think, one, one particular uh, coach, probably the right word, talking about the 19 more compounds seem to work better and have less negative side effects on the kind of Middle Eastern, Asian planet. Yeah. Uh, countries um, which was interesting but I, I don't know what why it would be but uh, 
and I, I heard that several times. Yeah, I mean, if you look at someone like Rami, Rami looks like he's swimming in Decker, whereas a Jay Cutler looks like a very much a high test kind of guy. Um, that's that would be my initial thought to that. Yeah, um, and and when you think about it, the, the ninety more compounds are probably the ones that are. Um, have the biggest difference on how people feel or, or, or how it affects them. You've got people that, that, that love them and people that can't tolerate them at all. And even different drugs within that family. You've got people that are very pro or anti Nandrolo, but not all those people are, are the same pro or anti Trembolo. So there definitely seems to be a difference in how they are tolerated by people. Yeah. This is something I, I discussed with, um, well, the, the dietary differences is something I discussed with another friend of mine, Ollie, and I think it's it's something which, yeah, as I say, over the next 10 years, I think it's going to be fascinating to see what comes out in those areas. We, in terms of hypertrophy research, we've only really had decent hypertrophy research probably the last 10, 12 years since Schoenfeld did his, well, in terms of worm bomb study was the big one. I think it was 2008, whenever it was, and then Schoenfeld did his follow-up. Um, looking at the three different factors affecting muscle gain. Prior to that, in sort of 2000, we were taking all of our research from sports and performance and sort of trying to apply it to hypertrophy. But we didn't really have any specific hypertrophy work. And I think we could probably say the same now for performance enhancement in regards to different racial differences. Possibly in 10, 20 years' time, that's going to be an area that people look at. So it's a contentious area, though. It's a difficult one. Yeah, to... yeah but I think one of the things that actually will do that kind of area of research a massive favour that probably a lot of people don't think about is the fact that bodybuilding or, or at least going to the gym and lifting weights is becoming more fashionable now yeah. and so many more people are doing it because when I did my uni degree even though that was only um, you know three years ago four years ago maybe when I did my when I did carried out research there it was so difficult to find people to do a study that even though I could put in it that they had all weight trained for at least two years this that and the other None of them were bodybuilders and none of them knew how to right, do a bench press and focus on using your pecs. Yeah. That was something you had to teach them. Now, one of the biggest probably limiting factors in research on muscle growth is you're doing it on participants that aren't well accustomed to the kind of training to produce muscle growth. So any stimulus really is going to be exaggerated and they're probably going to struggle with things like producing um, intensity yeah. excuse me pain tolerance that kind of thing but i found that difficult because i, I hardly knew anyone I, aside from going down to a gym and actually trying to recruit people in which case why, why are they going to come out come out and do that for free and they didn't have any funding to offer people it's very hard to find people that have trained for specifically bodybuilding to come and do your studies yeah. the more people that are doing it the easier that'll be to do the more we can get studies done that kind of more accurately represent the bodybuilders that we're, that we're going to be aiming it towards my, my thought on that is any decent lifter is not going to want to change his program to do a study for for three months well, yeah, like, that's the other you, thing. you know if you ask me if brad Schoenfeld asked me hey do you want to do 45 sets per muscle group for the next three months i'm like all right mate i'm okay thanks um you know it's a uh, fuck that you know because what i don't i mean i've got my own thing that i'm doing i've got my own plan any serious lifter is going to have his own plan he's going to be on some kind of schedule which is going to fit his year he's not going to want to interrupt that for maybe for a decent amount of money sure but like you say it's hard to get funding I and mean, it's hard to get funding at that level anyway so it, yeah, it's always going to be tough to i mean i had this conversation with with a friend of mine about the looking at advanced training and what advanced lifters do and how then that we can't really correlate that to the current research there's we know there's a lot of discrepancies between uh untrained individuals we can't really take that 
information particularly seriously at all. It's like probably one step up from rat studies and then uh, on trained individuals. But then you go into a guy who's trained and the guys who are trained, they tend to be, you know, reasonably strong for naturals and, you know, like maybe 80 to 100 kilo bench. Not, not going to turn any heads, but it's, it's okay. But then you've got guys who want to know this research who it actually makes a difference for, who are guys who are 250 pounds, 290 pounds. Like all the guys I've had on my podcast recently have all been about 290, knocking on 300. and like lean. I like trying to extrapolate research to them. It's not going to happen. So you have to kind of default to say, look, whatever you guys are doing, and they're all pretty much doing the same shit, by the way, is probably going to work perfectly fine. And we can't be so arrogant as to think, well, the we have to extrapolate the research onto them. The, this, this guy who I was arguing with was saying that, you know, we know what works and we know what works. We can, we can, we can probably get them to train better and make more progress. And I'm like, look, I call a big fat BS on that because we don't know what works for those guys. No one's put a 290 pound guy in a lab to test for long enough to test to see what's worked with a range of anabolics and whatever. It doesn't happen. Well, that's the other thing. Um, any study you do, not any study, but the majority, you're not going to be able to go into what, um, compounds and drugs these people are using yeah. because once they tell you I'm taking this that and the other suddenly if something happens to him the question is going to be what well, so you knew your participants doing that and you didn't you didn't do anything about it that's why I wasn't even allowed to ask participants if if they were they weren't when I was doing research definitely you can't turn around and advise them on what to do or manipulate what they're doing so essentially you have to do research on naturals to try and apply it to not just in bodybuilding, but in all sports, people at the top who are definitely not natural. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a, it's a difficult one. I think with that, we've got to look at what people are doing and, and what's working for them. And so every, so this is why I've been so keen on getting guys who are actually big and doing things on my podcast to say, to give people an idea of what's going on, which is what's made our discussion on sort of managing hunger. So interesting because a lot of that is really practical stuff, which I imagine anyone who's seriously pushed their body up has experienced. Like, I know I have all the things you talked about, texture, gastric emptying, cooking style, all that stuff. It's very useful stuff. So, but a good discussion on macro optimization. Uh, we've actually looked at nutrient timing quite a lot. Um, here's one thing which I thought we could get like a, maybe more of a general philosophical discussion on uh, would be because I know I know you were hesitant about talking about it just because if you are looking at performance benefits if we look at say performance versus health comp being competitive in itself isn't really particularly healthy bodybuilding when you're pushing it isn't really healthy um, so the question was really to do with performance versus health trade-offs um, but I guess yeah under the umbrella of Pushing your body weight up super high, high BMI, etc. Regardless of whether you're lean or not, it's probably not that healthy. Using That's the biggest thing. Like to total body weight is probably the most. Um, it's probably going to have the biggest effect on maybe life expectancy. If you're constantly 50 kilos or 100, 110 pounds over what your normal weight would be, you, you can't expect that that isn't going to have an effect. I'm probably going to have more of an effect than anything else. And even things like glucose metabolism are largely dependent on um, well how your weight is made up. But, but although being 100 pounds overweight muscularly rather is probably better than being 100 pounds overweight from fat, it's still 100 pounds overweight and it still has an effect on your health. So it's very difficult to, to be talking about you know how optimizing health when you're also intentionally making yourself overweight and trying to maintain it and taking steroids and doing you know however many other things there are that are constantly having a downward pressure on your health 
it doesn't really matter what supplements you take by then to improve your kidney function and heart function and all this kind of thing. Of course, it's going to help, but what about everything else you do? I like, I like that point that you said right at the beginning there, where you said over your natural body weight. So I think that's something to bear in mind. And that probably accounts for some of the variance between when people are healthy and when people aren't. So my, like both, neither of my brothers really train that much anymore. But uh, my eldest one particularly has pretty much stopped. We're, we're all built fairly similarly in terms of bone structure and all that kind of stuff. My eldest brother is about 60 kilos. And yeah. the, hev- the heaviest I've been has been pushing 100. So I'm thinking to myself, I've pushed 40 kilos over where I probably should be. <laughs> so that's pretty fucking heavy, you know, uh, whereas hundred kilos for somebody like yourself, it's not that big of a deal because you've got, maybe you've got a bigger frame. I don't know, you know, it's hard for me to know because cause I started training so young when I started training, I was 60 kilos, right? but I don't really know what I'd be in that by now. Now I'm an adult if I didn't train, but uh, I don't doubt it would be less than I am now. Were you, how old were you when you started training? You were quite young. Um, 14 really. I mean, I had some yeah, weights yeah. at home when I was 13, 